0: Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Blair. This is another conversation with a Mr. Howie Abrams. So, although chronologically Howie's first appearance on this podcast comes, what, about five or six episodes in? He was actually the first person I spoke to on this project before it took any kind of form um, and continues to be as graceless as it is. So this one really, it kind of is a really good bookend to this sort of section of series. I'm mean, 80 hours in. I'm 80 hours in, there's certain things which I now understand, which I wanted to extrapolate on with Howie, and he delivered in spades. And there's certain things which I'm now closing the book on, which I'm not going to ask too much in the future. I feel like I know enough. So for example, Typo Negative, Bloody Kisses, The Goal Campaign, I feel like I know enough about that now. Dynamo 95, I feel like I know enough about that now. It's bound to come up in the future, but I'm not making a point of exploring it any further. And you'll understand why once you see just how much detail Howie goes into on those things. Don't forget to check out Howie's books as well. Link's in the description. Anyway, enjoy this one. One, two, fuck you up. Thanks thanks for rejoining me, Howie. Um, Yeah, my pleasure. This is a bookend for me now because you're the first person I spoke to on this project. Mm. And now it's been 80 hours of interviews. So now I'm coming at you with... There's only, there was like one question which I didn't ask last time, which I'll end with. Right, oh, you know what I'm going to open up with? I'm going to open up with um, some things that we sort of speculated about last time and we didn't know the answers to. Oh, okay. Um, but ah, now I, okay. now I've got the answers. So first of all, in terms of what Case was doing in the 70s, I won't go into detail, but basically he was well into, as you said, the major label system. And it took him from like yeah. New Zealand... All the way to be like heading up RCA Holland, um, but basically a lot of it was dancing around PolyGram, and then it culminates in. I think he walked from um, RCA when they were like killing off the merged offices, and he was just like, "I fucking, I'm sick of all this um, corporate bullshit. I'm going to do something completely different." And then Roadrunner starts yeah. not in 1980. Yeah. But you know, you know that the.
1: Um- well, just, just bef- to hold on for a second, because mm. the uh, the All Blacks, which is the holding company
2: mm.
1: of Roadrunner, um, it, you know, technically, when you sign an agreement with Roadrunner, you were signing with the All Blacks BV. So um, basically, that came from his time in New Zealand, um, you know, and the All
0: Blacks uh, rugby team. Yeah. Yeah. The, there's, little, there's little hints to things like this. So there's All Blacks. I'm wondering what Blue Grape is. I heard the other day that it could be a bar in Holland, which he liked. Okay. But he does not know. I have no idea. I recently learned the nature of Blue Grape as well. Because I always considered like Rudron Blue Grape to be, um, well, Blue Grape to be under, say, the All Blacks, like part of the same company. But no, it, was, it, was it was, yes. It was, yes, yes a, it was another company under the All Blacks, basically. It, I, I thought it was, I understand it to be completely separate. Like I said, it's owned by Case. Yeah. It's a separate company.
1: And that, that I don't let now, I don't know the, the way it was structured, you know, mm. officially, but I do know that it was close enough to be a thorn in my side <laughs> for a very long time.
0: Yeah. Cause it's part of the 360 deal. Right. So,
1: yeah. So you had to do, you had to sign people the blue grape and, you know, unlike the publishing part of that, you know, where you had to sign publishing as well, you know, yeah. yeah, right. Um, but you could point to Blue Grape and introduce someone to people who worked at Blue Grape. Mm. And there was a time there where, let's just say, the Blue Grape quality of merchandise wasn't so great. right? And so you kind of had to do it. And then the bands would be like, but these are the friggin' thinnest T-shirts I've ever seen. And the printing sucks and the colors are off and like, you know, and you kind of had to do it. And so it was a terribly unfortunate um, part of my Roadrunner, my time at Roadrunner. <laughs> it got exactly. better. It got better, and I liked the people there. So it wasn't, you know, I didn't have anything against the people that worked at Blue Grape. It was just like, why? Do, really, I just want to get this band to make a record. I, I don't want merchandise. Like, <laughs> I
0: don't, don't want to talk about, about this. Why are we talking keywords? about this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so that's so. To tail off that, so I found out the exact date the Roadrunner was formed. Mm. So well, actually, there's kind of two bits. So it starts out as Roadrunner Productions BV, which is a gadget company, mm. right? That's what cases. That's what he wanted to do, and then in his dealings with Bertus Import Export in in Amsterdam, someone catches wind the metal is selling, and then they form Roadrunner Records in gotcha. February 27th, 1981, with Jan mm. van der Linden.
2: Mm.
0: So right. that, was, that was one thing, cases background. Next was RC. Ah. We didn't did know why it was broken down in, in such a way. Yeah. Um, so RC, so there was... Roadrunner, RC, Roadracer. Yeah, r- Roadracer, I've now got the full the full arc on because we know why Roadracer was Roadracer is because of the Warner Brothers um, dispute. Right. Warner Brothers say, look, people are going to confuse your metal label with a flightless bird, which is chased by a coyote which we own.
1: Totally
0: totally reasonable. Totally reasonable. Totally reasonable. <laughs> so obviously Road Racer was born, but I didn't know how it was resolved and I found out the other day. While Warner Bros hold the United States trademark for Roadrunner, apparently the trademark wasn't too strong in the rest of the world. So Cage ah, just went, all right, all right, let's you want to play like that. So he- I'll be Roadrunner everywhere else. He locked it down. So every time like Wiley Coyote came to Belgium, case was like, fuck no. <laughs> we own that.
1: <laughs> That's it. I, I didn't know that. It makes sense, but I had no idea.
0: It's so cool, isn't it? So eventually um, one of us were like, all oh, right, okay. So let's let's come to an agreement. So now this is a little closer to home for yourself um, in terms of RC. So as you know, important were the distributors until I think it was like 91, 92, when there's a deal struck with RCA, where all the high... Value flagship artists such as, say, King Diamond, mm-hmm. uh, maybe Crimson Glory, a couple of maybe, maybe even Sepultura, the, the sort of later part of those thrash years, they would go through this major distribution system. Uh, and that would be under Roadrunner. And then anything that goes through IRD during this period is RC. Mm. So mm-hmm. the split the catalog into like different distribution distribution. Distribu- yeah, model.
1: yeah, that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, so that that's makes m- sense. And last but not was, Again, that was
1: a little bit before my time, but um, they, they didn't release anything new on RC while I was there, uh, or Road Racer for that matter. Um, but uh, but I knew there was some purpose to the separation of the three.
0: Yes. But yeah, that, but those are the, the main things which I've now like, I've, I've gotten nailed.
1: You're just swimming in information now.
0: Yeah, it's, it's yeah. To be honest, man, I'm getting to the point where I try when I relay anecdotes, I can't remember who told me them in the first place. <laughs> right, right. it's like bad. it's horrible. Who said that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah right. someone told me. It could have been him. Could have been her. And they they're left uncredited. Right. Okay. As well, so in, in, as long well as there's proof somewhere, right? Yeah. Well, there's 80 hours of of YouTube videos now to tell us exactly what it is. Yeah. Um, Okay, so it, moving into things that knowledge gaps, which I'm hoping you can fill as, as we, we- Yeah, as, Let's see what I can do. There's, oh, there's some bits which are like, I'm I'm now closing the book on, like the typo stuff I'm closing the book on because yeah. I think I've learned everything I could possibly learn about Bloody Kisses with the yeah. exception yeah. of your role in that as product manager. So it's just a perspective I would want to get to. But there's one thing that's been bothering me and a few other people. Um, and you, this is a complete shot in the dark. Don't know if you know it or not. Whatever happened to Connie Barrett? So I
1: really don't know what ever happened to Connie Barrett. It's like, it's funny because even when she was getting involved with some of these bands and and everything, when she was getting involved with agnostic front and I think uh, she was working with carnivore. I think she did whiplash maybe. um, Yes. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. And she may have done the crumb suckers for a while. Um, And she just sort of like, Popped out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. I didn't know who she was. I didn't know why anybody wanted to work with her. Mm-hmm. Um, I would just see her at shows. And it was sort of like, well, she's a little older and she wears kind of funky glasses. And like, who is that woman? And like, what's her story? But I have absolutely no
0: idea where she is
1: right now. I could not tell you.
0: Okay. My only lead now, my only lead is Steve Akadi, who had a mate. Who did front of house at CBGBs? Who might know? That's the best I can do now.
1: Yeah, because I have no idea. Like she was sort of, you know, on the scene around, and then she just wasn't,
0: you know? Mm. Cool, fine. It's just one of these things. Because as as I've tried to be obsessed with with Carnivore over this period and trying to understand more about, especially trying to get into the New York hardcore element of it, which obviously Mm -hmm. played a bit more of a role in, in your tenure at Roadrunner, I'm like, okay, there's some personalities here um connie was central to some bits especially when there wasn't an office in the u.s let's try and figure it out no one knows what happened to her Mel archives says she di- she died in the early 90s i've heard nothing to verify that i have no idea no idea Fine. she could be walking here she could be gone i have no idea cool cool let's move on um so urban discipline yeah were you for were you around for this particular deal
1: Yeah, I was there um, right around the time I had gotten to Roadrunner was when Roadrunner was talking um, to Biohazard to get that album. I mean, they were trying to sign the band ultimately, but, um, you know, they are now managed by Rush Management. um, So you have like, you know, kind of a, a bigger management company involved with them who had, you know, sort of lofty goals for them as far as record label. Mm -hmm. And so they decided that let's do one more independent record and we'll do it with Roadrunner because Roadrunner was really becoming this sort of powerhouse with Sepultura and a few other things at the time.
0: Underground credibility, but also a reliable infrastructure.
1: Yeah, like we could actually probably sell some copies too, you know. Mm -hmm. So that happened and it was right around the time that I got there. And the band was kind of recording the album already, even though they were negotiating. The band was, I think the management company just fronted the money, you know, Mm -hmm. said, go record your second album, you know? You know, when I got to Roadrunner, it was uh, sort of understood that I would not just be doing AR, I'd also be a product manager, uh, not only for the bands that I signed, but at the time, they also gave me Sepultura, Mm -hmm. Typo, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and Biohazard. So basically, um, I get there. And pretty early on, they took me to the studio to listen to Urban Discipline. Mm -hmm. And so I heard Urban Discipline. It almost didn't matter, like if the album was great or good or what, because biohazard had become a factor. You know, I don't think I realized how popular they'd become overseas but i certainly knew that they'd become something on the east coast in america and they were kind of poised to you know to even do better than just the east coast you know Mm -hmm. um so i went and i it's funny i remember i listened to the album and evan said to me like you look disappointed and I said, I'm not disappointed at all. He goes, you just don't fucking like it because it's not sick of it all. And I was like, I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, I don't compare you and sick of it all, you know? And, and, you know, so he, he had this thing up his ass that like, I, <laughs> I, wasn't really into biohazard because I loved sick of it all so much and that I thought that they were not as good as sick of it all. And I was like, I don't don't really think of you in the same sentence, to be honest with you, you know? Um, so anyway, I wrote the, uh, the marketing plan for urban discipline. Um, you know, we arranged having the videos made, um, you know, I knew Paris and Drew. So these were people who I was friends with and they were making the videos um and brought it to MTV, you know, for Headbangers Ball. And the album came out and it just made a ton of noise. It just it did more than we expected, I think, you know. Um I think it did more than the band expected and more than the management expected. And meanwhile, you know, I'm getting calls from Lior Cohen, you know, at at Rush, like, you know, trying to pressure us into spending a bunch of money and, you know, doing all these things. And we're like, we gave us one fucking record, dude. Like, what do you want us to do? Like, you know, if you want a second video, get Warner Brothers to pay for it. Like, you're you're signed there already, you know? So he's hitting me up and you got to get Case to do this and blah, 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 blah.
0: There's, there's two bits to this so I want to unpack. So one is Leo Cohen, because obviously I've been trying to, I've been trying to pin down the star of this relationship with him and Case. Obviously knowing what happens in like 20 years from that point
1: Well, that was the beginning that was probably the beginning so there was a guy who worked at rush whose name is scott Koenig, and scott was a a metal guy he worked at rush he was one of the people that helped get slayer on def jam um he was very involved in that um i knew him forever through like the tape trading world and stuff like that i used to buy bootlegs from him when I was a teenager, um, so we knew each other for quite a quite a long time, and so he became biohazard's manager and brought them to Rush. So Leor was his boss, and so Leor is the one who uh, ultimately got the deal done with Case for Biohazard in 1993. Mm-hmm. So long before there was a Warner Brothers uh, Roadrunner relationship as a proper label
0: relationship. Mm-hmm. um they did business together that way awesome awesome i knew I, I, I remember reading it somewhere but i know they get on really well the case in leo and i know it, it, there's this i mean every time i talk about leo he kind of like comes across like he's an antagonist because he was effectively there for the universal purchase and also for the warner person's purchase, purchase purchase but it's not obviously it's not that he's just a dude who knows music and he works at these big labels that I was always trying to picture the arc of that narrative. And it's, I knew it started at biohazard and now I know it's at rush.
1: Yeah. I mean, he was the, he was partners with Russell Simmons. So Def jam and rush were, you know, sort of management arm and the record label. It was owned by Russell both. Mm -hmm. And, you know, basically uh, because Russell Simmons, nickname is russell rush and so basically that's where that came from mm. and leor was the uh original road manager uh for the beastie boys i think he he did run the MC too but i don't know if he did like the run the MC beastie boys tour and that's where the run the MC part came in but like mm. that was where he started so he wow. was the road manager for like these big rap acts that were playing arenas in america wow and then he became like you know sort of a CEO-ish financial guy, you know, for like that road uh, rush, rush death jam world.
0: Mm. As if. So you, you alluded to it a little bit with Leo um, Leo calling you up and saying, do this, do that. How is this arrangement being received at Roadrunner? Because you must be pretty pissed that there's like this, you're, you're kind of incubating this act. It's doing really well, but it ain't yours.
1: Right, but I guess we had enough arrogance to us where we we're like, we're gonna do better than them anyway. You know what I mean? So <laughs> we, we just sort of looked at it as like, we're gonna fucking kill and good luck Warner, you know? It, that's sort of what our attitude was. Like, wow. because we felt good about it and then it really just started to fucking happen, You know what I mean? So we also knew they weren't a commercial band. It's like, so it's like when Sepultura did the one record on Epic, you know, mm-hmm. where you're like, what are they gonna do for them? that we're not doing it's like they're not going to get on the radio and that's what major labels do mm. you know so we already had very strong distribution i know we're going to get to your ird questions but like you know it, it, it's like what are they going to accomplish that we're not already accomplishing so that's how we felt with biohazard too like when they go to warner they're not getting on the radio they're not going to have more street credibility they're not going to do better on the metal stations, like. They'll do well because we're doing well now, but what what's really the benefit?
0: You know, In- we, interesting. It's just,
1: we're like fuck it. You know, it's disappointing. Rest, we feel we feel like we have the best album that they're ever going to release.
0: Wow, that's all. That's ballsy and a new a new take on that particular arrangement. That's awesome. And,
1: and, and you know, listen, they did fine with the first Warner album. Mm. Um, they didn't do immeasurably better than they did with us. But any album following up a very successful album is going to have that huge first week, you know, and chart and like all that stuff. But in the end, not really going to sell that many more copies than you did before. Mm. Um, You're just going to have a better start. And so the industry is going to take notice because, holy shit, look how many they sold that first week, you know, whereas we built that, you know. Um, So, you know, and the band built it. i shouldn't say we built it but like our experience with the band built that and they're touring they're relentless touring you know yeah, yeah um and you just saw it happen and then it started to happen overseas which i honestly believe could never have happened for them on warner if they had never done that roadrunner record um how can what happened for them in the uk and europe have happened no way
0: Let's jump to that question then, because you mentioned this last time in terms of like the the European effect. There was obviously the U.S. operation. There's a, a European operation, and your observation of that was, "Fuck me, the European operation is so tight," but the ANR uh, functionality is over in the states. So. Yeah. W- that's the core thing. I mean, you did have territory specific acts, but there was yeah. a threshold they had to pass before they'd get the worldwide distribution. Whereas yeah. if you sign a band in the US, typically they'd get the whole deal. Yeah. Why, is that a mismatch is, or is, that, is there a strategy to that? No, there's a strategy to that. And
1: I'll tell you how I found out the strategy. Um, I mean, obviously I live in New York, I've grown up here, you know, so I was here and Roadrunner had their their office here. But when I worked at Roadrunner for a few years, You know, you go to Holland enough times and you go to, you know, Amsterdam enough times. You're like, fuck, I want to move here. You know, when you're in your 20s, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And Case is like, don't don't move here. And I'm like, what do you mean don't move here? He goes, all the best bands that you want to sign are in America. Mm -hmm. You know, so you got to be there. That's the whole point. Um, If you look at the overall success of the company, Mm -hmm. every major band, for the most part, after, after the first couple of minutes of the label, um, it all was American, you know? So every huge
0: band on Roadrunner was an American band. I guess, like, while the, the well, that is the answer to the question, obviously in the Roadrunner context, I guess there's a bigger conversation as to, like, well, metal was a British thing for a substantial amount of time. Then it went over to the States. And then there's, like, a German thing. And I guess, like, we have to understand that to understand why Case is in a position to say... Of course, all the all the, the big bands were all American.
1: Well, but the thing is, I guess,
0: yes, you know, you had,
1: you know, your your Black Sabbath and your new wave of British heavy metal, and you had that era. But once that stuff became popular here and the band started to form here, and, like, you really, you know, you had all of these, like, um, you know, all of the subgenres here, right? So you mm-hmm. had the Bay Area thrash thing and the Florida death metal thing and the, you know, the this and the that. Um, it just became more prominent here you know and certainly you had great german thrash bands and whatever but it took you know the metallicas and the slayers to put that stuff on the map um you know it took the the venoms and the merciful fates and all of that to like help establish there's an underground movement below that stuff below the arena you know heavy metal stuff and then there were clubs established in America that these bands can now play. Some mm-hmm. of them graduated to theaters. But, you know, I mean, I growing up on metal for myself, I, I was reading British magazines. You know, mm-hmm. like there was nothing here. I was going to the record store that you could buy Kerrang! and Metal Forces and Metal Hammer and, and, and all of that. Um, and, you know, then you eventually get into fanzines. But, you know, the, the American metal scene was pretty underdeveloped when those European and English bands were becoming prominent here. I mean, yeah. by 1983, Metallica's is just getting started, you know, uh, Maiden's doing their second or third year in America in arenas, mm. you know? So it, it it was an interesting overlap, but all influenced by them. But then, the, you know, the thrash thing became like American metal,
0: you know? Mm. I, th- I think what you're saying in relation to the, to the question itself is the reason why there's a perceived mismatch between like the f- efficacy of the European marketing and the fact that a and in the United States is because whether we like it or not, the United States is the trend setting territory. And that's where you're going to be throwing your pennies in as, as well, an investment I, body. I, th-
1: I think that's pretty accurate. And I think, you know, what's funny is that, you know, there was sort of a backlash to that. Like when you work at like the major labels, mm. um, you know after a while uh, not even just after a while but at a certain period there were you know there was like a rise in like english bands like there were a lot of english bands that were becoming very popular in the uk very few of them happened here you know mm. um but there were a number that that were really huge in the uk like number one albums even oasis later on you know yeah. like it, it took until their second album for people to care about them here mm. and then all of a sudden You know their first album outside of like the people who read nme in america Mm -hmm. you know like heard about oasis and then all of a sudden there's blur and then there's you know so you would try to have like an american band released in the uk on a major label Mm -hmm. and they'd be like nah fuck that we have we have enough of our own bands like we have our own thing here you know so Mm -hmm. they like rebelled against that after a while you know like like no we have great English bands, you know? I think like, that's... you do, but, you know.
0: But the UK Roadrunner branch did that. A lot of their a f output was like Britpop and what was happening in the UK in the mid-90s. Uh,
1: a little later on, yes. And, you know, listen, we, we got offered every band on Roadrunner, whether it was British, German, wherever the fuck it came from. Like, we mm. were offered all of them. But, we had enough trouble trying to, you know, break our own stuff over here, you know, yeah. it was tough. So even though we were the taste makers, not everybody had our taste, yeah. <laughs> you know, so that took a while. And then they're like, Hey, you want to put like Waltari out, you know? And we're like, you're kidding. Right. Like th- nobody has ever heard of them. I'm not sure people have heard of them overseas, you know? <laughs> um, so it's not just like, this is good put it out you know we learned that lesson you know just because we think it's good you know no. doesn't automatically make it a candidate for release in the united states of america it's a big place
0: I did it's expensive katsu from uh from waltari and it is it is interesting i, I yeah. do get it though because like really easy in europe to understand waltari as as a as a body because it's kind of like mm-hmm. it is like experimental it's it's a bit of everything it's a bit progressive but there's a lot of like european dance elements well
1: that's what i mean it's like yeah. you know like the europe the europe uh, knob is turned to 11. you know what i mean <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely we say, we say that about a lot of canadian bands too yeah <laughs>
0: you know the, the canadian the canadian lever is all the way up <laughs> Um I wanted I didn't have, I didn't put these in my questions, but I had like a thought. I was watching this documentary earlier on um Rick Chrome. Is it Rick Chrome? It's a comedian for the comedy cellar in the West Village. And oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I was I was sort of like I was getting sort of like that weird sort of wave of nostalgia as you do for New York when it's like this weird sort of like everything artsy and undergroundy. Um New York's like a really good sort of like place for that kind of scene, whether it's well it used in- to be. well yeah we can get on to that but uh, was that fitting for Roadrunner do you think for Roadrunner to be in New York because it's like if you were talking about emerging artsy scenes and music scenes and things like that was Roadrunner like was it setting out to be like the kingmakers of that world in metal like for what Johnny Carson say was for comedians right if you went on to Carson it's like there you go you've got the you've got the blessing if you're on Broadway you've got the blessing was Roadrunner like was it trying to I don't know if there wasn't any 10 or maybe it was just like, because it was there, but do you think like in that zeitgeist of nostalgic art scene, do you think Roderick had a place in that? I think at first it did not because
1: I think metal was still such a like bastardized form of music. Like even the art, the most artistic thought it was shit. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I think it operated outside of that stuff. You know, it was great that it was in New York. It's closer to England. It's closer to Europe um, than California, for instance. And at that time, California had its like hair metal thing. So it kind of had its own thing going on out there. Whereas in New York, you had like, quote unquote, cooler shit going on. And so <laughs> it's like metal. Listen, there's a reason Lamore was way out in a fucking warehouse district in Brooklyn. You know what I mean? It's because when everybody leaves the club and they're vomiting and they're throwing bottles at each other, it's like, it's okay. Because nobody's hearing it. You know, if you did that in the middle of Manhattan Mm
2: -hmm.
1: club shut down, kids arrested, like, you know, it's, it would be a fucking mess. So not that that wasn't happening with punk earlier on, Mm -hmm. but you know, but it was a very different thing. And I think later on, Roadrunner was cool being in New York. You know what I mean? Mm. But like it took quite a while because, you know, early on, there were very few Roadrunner bands that you could go see in a packed mm. club in New York. You know what I mean? So, yeah, there was Whiplash, there was Carnivore. When Roadrunner had Carnivore, you know, They were still a very underground band. They didn't draw a lot of people. They drew 200 people, you know, Mm -hmm. Whiplash drew 50, 60 people. Mm -hmm. You know, they play a lot of bills with other bands. So, you know, it it gave them the stature. All these bands were bigger when they broke up. Carnivore was 10 times more popular when they broke up. When they were actually together, they were like a remotely successful Brooklyn metal band. That's what they were. you go, you know, everybody talks about them playing CBGBs like it was some fucking massive event. Nobody gave a fuck about carnivore at CBGBs. <laughs> they were they were infiltrators. You know what I mean? They weren't like people make it like they were this giant part of like the crossover. And it's like they weren't, you know, they Pete was, mm. but it wasn't just carnivore it was there was a whole scene of bands and like when the hardcore bands and the metal bands started to play together then it was a crossover but it's not like carnivore was some fucking hardcore band started
0: playing metal shows yeah yeah i, I didn't i i was apprehensive of that question because steeped in like my perception of nostalgia to your city so i was like i wonder if this is gonna land but you nailed it
1: <laughs> but i mean that's kind of what it was it's like it wasn't cool metal was metal still not cool you know it's like it was cool for a minute when it, it became pop you know like when mm-hmm. when it was def leopard and motley Crue and and all that like iron Maiden's still not fucking cool you know and it's like they're they're as big as they've ever been right now they can yeah. still do two three nights in arenas in america mm. you know like every every big city yeah. and, but there's nothing cool about them you know and people don't embrace them they still look at them like there's like you know like you know like a
0: like a, a joke a warhammer band like a weird nerdy band yeah yeah you, you know, know what i mean it's like yeah yeah totally it's like, a,
1: like they're, they're like dungeons and dragons as a band you know yeah
0: <laughs> sometimes like I find myself digging into like the, the function of the proper back office shit of a label. Um uh spoke to Alan Becker at uh, length yeah. as well. Fuck me, that guy. I fucking love Alan Becker. He's amazing. He's absolutely amazing. I'm, he's I'm, he's
1: he's the reason NFX Records got started.
0: Yeah. He's the is he's, he's the reason Underground metal had a platform in the 80s.
1: He was a very, very big part of that. Really, really big. Because he was the guy who cared enough about music, even though that wasn't his thing, yeah. but music was his thing. And he cared and sort of mm. was like, This, you, we better keep an eye on this, you know, mm. like this is this is happening, you know? And he knew what was going on overseas and he knew what was going on here in America too. Yeah. And he's still at it still fucking at and he
0: looks the same as he did as when i worked with him (laughs) he hasn't aged at all as i said i'm like i'm really into the back office stuff because i think a lot of this a lot of the success of roadrunner and other things it's not just great bands it's not just like look there is a workflow association it's like a and at its peak 150 200 people all working in everyone just mucking in because everyone yeah. understands the product life cycle. And more importantly, everyone knows each other, which is like, it's, it's a point that's resonant amongst the working forces of today, understanding the value of that kind of stuff. Um, and So I want to ask you about Nielsen, because that must have been an absolute fucking game changer when it comes to the p and sheets. And um, especially when you're trying, as a product manager, when you're trying to assess the viability of a certain yeah. band, and yeah. in a
1: Well, you know what it did? It validated a lot of stuff because for a very, very, very long time, it was almost impossible to verify what things sold, you know? And when I say things sold is that you could ship any fucking amount of a record you wanted to, and sometimes they'd come back double, (laughs) you know? So I'll never forget working at Relativity, you know, also still through IRD.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And they signed Shotgun Messiah. So they signed Kingpin, right? right? And then turned them into Shotgun Messiah, whatever the fuck that means. <laughs> and so, and they just decided we're going to spend an obscene amount of money on making a record with them, an obscene amount of money on a video, and we we're going to ship an obscene amount of records, even though nobody knows who the fuck this band is, <laughs> right? So I remember the pressure that was being put on the sales department and the retail department. So you have like distribution in one room and the sales and retail people in another room who have to like get the stores to buy this ridiculous amount of records of a band they never heard, you know, of. But you could pay enough co-op dollars to like get them to do it as, as long as you promise that they could send it back to you when it doesn't sell. Who cares? So if I'm not mistaken. They shipped like 238,000 copies of that first Shaka Messiah album, right? Nobody knows who they are. Nobody, right? So, Relativity goes into MTV with this insane video that took like months to make that sucks. And they go in there, and MTV is like, why would we play this? They're like, the hair metal thing's dropping dead, you know? like. What are you guys gonna do? You know, like to make this meaningful. Like we don't want to play it. So now they're like, and you're not gonna play it. They're like, we shipped two hundred and thirty-eight thousand copies of this record, and that was the only thing that got them one play. <laughs> because how do you verify it? Right? You could walk into Tower Records at the time or Virgin and whatever. They've got it. They've got the record. It's everywhere. You know, nobody's buying it but they have it. So what, what SoundScan did, cause first it was just SoundScan, like the, the retail aspect mm-hmm. of it. And then you had, you know, like for radio play, but yeah,
2: yeah
1: is you got the truth. You got over the counter sales. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't just ship, say we shipped 300,000. So what, you sold 3000 records.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like the SoundScan is 3000 copies. You know, and, you know, it didn't always account for indie stores, which is where a label like Roadrunner dominated, you know, yeah. so you had all these indie record stores at the time that sold tons of copies, you know, so like, you could have one store in New York that would sell 250 copies the first week of, you know, whatever Roadrunner record from, you know, the, the, the 80s, early 90s, whatever, yeah. um, not accounted for, you know? You know, so it wasn't even accurate in Roadrunner's case. Mm -hmm. Um, It was low, you know. So, um, but the good news is it got to show that these records actually really sold. And when you saw them on a chart right next to or between these things that were perceived to be huge Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: then you realize, oh, they don't really sell much more than Sepultura, you know, Um, it helped with the media. So it really helped with the MTVs and those types of things because, I mean, listen, the people who worked at MTV and did Headbangers Ball loved Sepultura, so they didn't need to be taught who they were. Mm -hmm. But when you realize you're playing something, you know, as much as something that sold virtually nothing but has a lot of hype, it changes the perception. I know it completely, yeah. So it didn't change our perception, but it changed the perception outside the company.
0: We mentioned MTV a bit. What's the dynamic here? Because I know this is, this is the thing I'm hearing a lot. MTV is a big deal, a huge deal in the UK. Vanessa Warwick, I think, is the name of yeah. the person. What's her role in this? Because I have a feeling that she's got something to do with breaking a lot of those Roadrunner bands in the, in the mid-90s. See, here's the thing. I
1: don't know who the Roadrunner UK office submitted the videos to. Like, I don't know who they went and and had a meeting with, you know. But she was the on-air personality for sure. Mm. So she was like, over here we had Ricky Rackman. um, And then over there they had Vanessa. Mm. So, like, Ricky Rackman had zero to do with what got played, you know. Mm. But (laughs) he was chosen, for instance to be the VJ for Headbangers Ball, because it was at the time when the hair metal thing was huge. And because he was involved in the Cat House and stuff in LA, he could get Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue and Rat and these bands to come on the show and be comfortable because they knew him already. So I don't know what Vanessa's thing was. Like, I don't know what she did before. um, And I don't know if she had anything to do with submissions so Mm -hmm. she may have had absolutely nothing to do with what got played on the air but Mm -hmm. i know like when Donington would happen or dynamo happened she'd be the one there doing the interviews and who seemed to know the bands and she was attractive so like she had all the bands kind of wanted to fuck her and you you had this whole thing going on you know i don't know what her real role was other than being the the on-air talent
0: i know there's one anecdote, which is kind of like quite cutting, which is Dino from Fear Factory said that she hooked them up with a video for an out, for one of their records. It might have even been D manufacture. She was like, we've got to do a video for that song. And she made that happen.
1: Huh. I mean, you know, she might have been involved in the programming. She may very well. By the way, she was super nice. Mm. Um, I met her a few times. Um, you know, like, she was great. But I still you know, all I ever heard was, oh, we submitted the video to MTV in the UK. i never heard to. Him. Right.
0: Got it. Okay. Okay. Just a flight of fancy on my part. I'm just trying. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, this another thing. I'm say, I'm closing the chapter on some things, and I'm trying to explore other avenues. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. What were we talking about? We are talking about Nielsen, weren't we? Yeah. And the viability that I gave. Okay. And, and Nielsen on the radio side, that hadn't really been
1: developed yet. So the, you yeah. know, the, um, uh, the radio aspect of it was much later, but for Roadrunner, for most of certainly my time there, all of my time there, and most of the time later, it was meaningless because mm-hmm. they just, you know, like we didn't get radio, you know, until Typo. Um, you know, Typo is really the first band that got meaningful radio in America. Um, you know, pre- before Nickelback and all that stuff, like Sepultura wasn't on the radio, you know, it was. It was up until that and then Slipknot got some radio, but not, you know, not mm. you know uh
0: mainstream type
1: of not the type of radio you needed Nielsen to tell you about because you, you could name, you know, by heart the the stations that would play that,
0: you know? It's, maybe we should talk about this and when I talk about the bloody kisses stuff because I can't radio is obviously a massive deal and Mark Abramson is a fucking powerhouse, right? But in the UK, if I hear something on Radio One, to me it's no longer viable.
1: <laughs> right. But that's it, my it changes.
0: Music.
1: It's the same here. It's the same here. But but right. it's it used to be very powerful. Right. Right. And a it, combi- and a combination of radio and video play hmm. was pff, it's gone. Like you're
0: blowing up. I hate it. In these conversations, when when people say things like, you know, didn't have the internet back then. But I think when we talk about these particular <laughs> mediums, we kind of have to say the relationship with the media was completely different from a consumer level. Yeah. When people were competing for your time, it was a lot more sincere, I guess we could say it like that. So I guess that's why these things are a lot more important. And I think I have to do some mental gymnastics to get myself out of the current headspace, which right. is oh, it's Biffy Clyro being presented by Fern Cotton. Fuck that. Right, right, right. Biffy Clyro are even that bad. If it's the first thing I'm hearing on a a, Monday morning, I'm like, no. Well, but here was was always my view on that, right? Because,
1: you know, even with hardcore, like when we did In Effect, and even the hardcore bands on Roadrunner, like we'd always get flack because it's like hardcore is not supposed to be blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know what? It's fucking supposed to be whatever the band wants it to be. Mm. That's hardcore, you know? So if the band wants to do big tours and maybe some of those festivals have sponsors and this, that, and the other thing, that is their prerogative. And it is your choice to not go or not buy a record or Mm. not buy a ticket or whatever, you know? So for me... It was like, for instance, when when a typo was getting on the radio. Now, they weren't some big credibility band. Like, there was no credibility at stake for for typo negative being on the radio or not or having videos on MTV or not. They they weren't going to blow anything by Mm. going that route, you know. Um, It was just, let's get typo on the radio (laughs) as opposed to this other shit, you know, that is – absolutely bought and paid for you know by major labels and like doesn't necessarily deserve the shot it's getting except for the label that it's on and Mm -hmm. those types of things like typo you know deserved a shot they really Mm -hmm. deserved a shot they made a great record they paid dues between carnivore typo whatever multiple albums years slogging it out Mm -hmm. you know decisions were not going to tour ever, you know, um, and, and then making this great album and being convinced to change their minds, you know, and, and do these things. And, you know, they, they decided to go for it. So what's wrong with typo on the radio versus another shit song by another shit band, you know? So to me, the way, they got on the radio was organic like they started to get more popular yeah. so the outside media outlets paid attention to them mm-hmm. and it was very simple and then oh they're going on tour with nine inch nails they're going on tour with motley Crue, you know arenas you know they're doing this stuff mm-hmm. There's a lot going on. Like, we're not just taking a chance on them. Look at the tour they're on. Look at the, the groundswell of activity. Look at the, the you know, the gradual sales increases, like there's something legit happening here, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that was the most gratifying thing about that album, you know, mm-hmm. is that it happened for real. It happened the way things used to happen, you know? Um, We didn't have that kind of juice. Roadrunner didn't have juice to get things on the radio like that. Yeah, bands on that label were never on the radio, so it was a complete fucking unicorn, you know. (laughs)
0: Let's talk. Let's talk about bloody kisses then, because we're we're circling it. So aside from that central that central theme of, of it being happening organically. Let's sit down and talk about the origins of it, because this is how I understand it. And I think you are in the best place to tell me if this is how it happened. Case is just fed up one day of not having a gold record. Yeah, and he just, for a long time. Very yeah. long time. And he just comes in and he sits, presumably yourself down, Jim Salaby and Doug, and just goes, right, lads, I want a gold record. Look at the roster and tell me what, which is the most viable one, and we're going to make it happen.
1: I have never heard that story. Cool. Um, I don't don't recall anything like that ever happening. Um, What I recall, at least like when this first got on my radar, I got there in 92 Mm -hmm. and Bloody Kisses was being made, like while I was talking to Roadrunner about coming there. And so I get there and the album's just about finished. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't thought of typo as much more than anything than an album with an asshole on the cover. You know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah. like I had no reason to think there was some masterpiece coming from them, other than they had a few, you know, like really funny songs and <laughs> shit like that. So uh so now I start hearing, oh my God, wait till you hear this typo negative album. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm hearing it from people in the office. And these are people who also like the asshole album. So basically, you know, like, I don't know what to think, you know, like, am I just being hyped up or like, is this real? So, you know, like Psycho at the time, Mark Abramson, nobody called him Mark Abramson. He was Psycho, um, is is the leader of the fucking pack. Like, he's the guy talking the loudest. And again, this guy would love Pete Steele shitting in a bag. So basically, like, I don't know what to think. Like, is this going to be really great? Or is this like just, you know, a super fan telling me it's great? Mm. And so anyway, I got to hear the album and I was like, I can't believe this is the same band, you know, like, I can't believe what they made here, you know? It's the asshole band. Right. That's the asshole band. I can't believe this. So, so basically that's when the conversations began. Like, in terms of how do we make this special? What do we do? You know? So, my initial thought was as the product manager, people need to hear some of this without knowing who it is because of the asshole album. And so, how do we do that? Like, how do we get some tastemaker type metal people and hard rock people to hear this and not go, like, see the name? and go, oh, that's the band with the asshole record, you know, and and dismiss it, you know, or just treat it differently. Like we have to get them to hear the music first. So in my fucking ultimate wisdom, I said, radio department, press, retail, like indie retail, give me a tastemaker list of like 50 people each or something, you know? So like 50 radio people, 50 press outlets, 50 retailers. We took a Coney Island hot dog and a cassette with a few, I don't know if they were snippets of full songs. I think they were full songs. And we put the fucking Coney Island hot dog, a disgusting raw hot dog, and the cassette in a mailer and sent them to these 150 people. And... And we sent, like, a little note, you know, like, like, this should let you know, the hot dog should give you a little hint of where they're from, you know. And just listen, you know. And what was unfucking believable is probably two-thirds were like, is that typo negative? (laughs) And so we were like, how did you fucking know that? And they're like, well, we kind of heard that, like, they were making a new album, you know. So, but then we started to get this really fucking great feedback. Um, People were loving it, you know? So I wrote the marketing plan, like, you know, from forget forget their whole history, you know? Absolutely forget they've ever been a band before. Forget Carnivore. I don't want to know anything about any of it. This is day one. And any of those fans that help us, great. That's just plus, you know? Just count it in the victory column.
2: Mm-hmm. um
1: and we just embarked on this this plan like this slow but sure plan like sort of knew we weren't going to get any press you know yeah. like that's always the case like england gets press we don't get press here um once it's successful you get press
2: because mm-hmm.
1: they're they're total followers um but the metal radio world because of people like mark abramson he helped get it really embraced right it was sort of amazing, actually. And he was such a fan. And, you know, he got the tattoo, the whole, you know, the whole thing. That's where Roadrunner was amazing, because of somebody like him, you know, and he had Sophie DeMantis, who was the metal publicist. Mm. And she was also a massive fan, massive fan. So now you have the two of them in place, you don't have to convince them or motivate them at all. They are super fans. will do anything for Pete Steele. It doesn't matter, you know? And you needed them on board and you didn't have to do a thing to help. Wow. So that's really how I remember it starting, you know, but ultimately starting with this great record. Like even Monty, like he loved it, but he wasn't, he was almost like apprehensive about like hyping it, you know, he's just not a hype guy.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, when does case come on board then when does he realize it's a special thing
1: well i think i think when when it started to feel in the building you know that everybody was super super into it yeah and then advances got over to the other offices (laughs) in europe and whatnot and the reaction was the same you know um and pete was even more so in europe he was this notorious character you know so there were death threats about carnivore coming over there. You know, the little like symbol that they use. That's sort of like a, a swastika for the most part in other parts of the world. Yeah. Um, Mm. you know, it, There were death threats. It was, you know, it was part of the reason that they decided we're not touring because I don't need my bus destroyed again, you know? Um, (laughs) but the reaction came from England, Germany, fucking
0: Holland, Belgium, Mm. the U S it was everywhere. So, he's, that was so a case. saw the troops mobilizing.
1: Yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't ignore it. You undeniable. could not ignore it. Once, it. once it, you know, U.S. is one thing, and then it got overseas, and it's like well, everybody's into it, you know? Yeah.
0: Two years it took for it to go gold. Yeah. Two, is it a sustained campaign all the way up to that point?
1: Or oh, like, yeah, yeah.
0: Is, is it... Is it is there a point where it stops becoming let's make it special and let's make it gold? Is it, is it, does it switch between the well, two? Yeah, I
1: think I think when you're when you're approaching the three, three hundred and fifty thousand area mm. and it's still selling, then it's like, what type of retail campaigns and whatnot should we do? to put this over the top? Like, is it one more tour? Is it, mm. you know, do they need to be on the road? Which they kind of were, like they were on the road that whole mm. two years, yeah. you know? Um, they just sort of never came off the road and they went from like, you know, real real tour to real tour. Um, and then they were headlining and doing quite well. Um, and you had the radio stations that wanted to do the, the co-present, so. You know, W, go fuck your mother, like presents typo negative in Minneapolis, Mm. Minnesota, you know, Um, you had all that going on then, you know, because now people care, you know? Yeah. And so just that, you know, talk about organic. That's why it took two years, you know, when we put it out, you know, I don't even remember what the initial number of records we shipped was, but it it couldn't have been more than 30,000. And it probably was Mm. expensive to get that number out the door.
0: Yeah, it's, it hasn't sold much before. It's. A, I find that I, I always, and I'm now closing the chapter on this one because it. Yeah. It is so, it, and I'm really glad I asked you because it's it's such a fascinating milestone. It's the tipping point of the label. I think it's when it, it, it transitioned the whole company towards something different. But not only the company, though. All of a sudden, it's the, it's the first domino to metal becoming an incredibly disruptive force. It ends with some Slipknot, but it starts yeah. with that record and that thing tipping over to gold. Well, and it- what that did is it opened up all these channels, right? So
1: things and people that would never pay attention to Roadrunner or Roadrunner bands had to now, okay, so what's next after Typo? You know?
2: Yeah.
1: And <laughs> after a few Typo records, it became Slipknot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, it just, I don't know. I don't know how, I don't know how I can articulate it in any more interesting way than I have <laughs> many times before on, on this, on this, uh, in these conversations. It, it is just that it's the viability there. It's the, it's, it, it's that, it's just the viability It's the absolute commercial integrity, which a metal indie shouldn't have by any rights. Well, here's the thing though, too, and this
1: is where the Europe stuff comes in again, because, you know, Machine Head did well in America. Fear Factory did well in America. So there's a bunch of bands, you know, that that did well in America. But the thing is, they were still so big overseas. So, you know, basically, uh, it started to become one story a little bit. You know, so like Machine Head's American success was su- pretty substantial. You know, Fear Factory too. But the story from overseas combined with America, people are like, what do you mean that band sold, you know, 500,000 records worldwide and they sound like that? You know what I mean? That's how Slipknot sells Amer- a million records, you know, in America, because you had this combined story for all these bands that came before them between Europe and America. And, you know, so again, the machine heads, the fear factories, all of that, you know, even some of the smaller bands, like if you combine the sales of, of the rest of the entire world for Roadrunner, mm. it's like you start to get it. You know, it's like VOD, Shelter, all these bands did well around the world. You yeah. Know? Um, and it became meaningful.
0: I think like one of the proto sort of examples of that, you know, when the story starts merging, I think it sits in Florida death metal. I think it's like each of those Florida death metal bands don't, they don't sell more than say 10, 15,000 speculative but I'll have to see what the music connects ones are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but if you think about it, if once you're going, okay, well, this sounds like this sounds like this sounds like this common denominator Florida common denominator Morris sounds. If you can build a story around these kinds of acts, then you've just got your 10, 15,000 sales and you've multiplied it by seven because you've got seven of these bands. And then you have like a story and you have a scene. And when you've created that, it propagates itself and it's kind of, I don't think that's on purpose. It's. Just, I feel like that's more my own conjecture, but it's, feels about right when you scale well, but, it up but what happens is then a sepultura pops up
1: mm. you know and that's what happened in the middle of that pack of florida death metal along comes sepultura because death metal is visible now um you know thrash metal is visible death metal is visible and so now the, the people like monty and the Borvois and like all, all these guys are looking around the world for these bands, you know? So the demo tape trading thing was international. So (laughs) it made sense that on top of, or next to this Florida scene comes a Sepultura, you know? Mm. And so they're from Brazil. It didn't even matter at the time, you know? Like it was like a cool little factoid that they were from brazil yeah. um but at the end of the day they were just the fucking most brutal band and after after slayer they were the band like they became that next band um, yeah. as they evolved so by the time they got to beneath the remains you know they were like when you were when you thought slayer was soft you know now you like sepultura
0: i was speaking to joe McIver the other day and his was it's the alternative to the big four that's the mm-hmm. exact. That's the one. Right. That's the game. Right. One. Someone said, "Like I love." I'll... You're not the first person to mention the the story coming together. And there's sprung to Stephen Hill. I'm just referring back to other conversations to how I'll "Join these points and these dots together as I build this fucking modern, absolute beast of a project." Um, he, Stephen Hill, referred to Donington '96. It's like Fear Factory, Machine Head, Biohazard, Dog oh, Eat oh, Dog. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. And he was like... But but wait,
1: but opening for Ozzy and Kiss. Yeah, yeah. But the thing there, though, is... Everyone's hero. So every band you just mentioned, those are the heroes. Like somewhere between Ozzy's history and and Kiss's history, those are the heroes for every band you just mentioned.
0: Yeah. But but the the point is, none of those bands sound the same. There's something, there's a thread, there's something there. And that's what we're talking about when we say this combined story.
1: Well, think about the Kerrang! cover, right, at that time for that mm-hmm. Donnington. was John from Doggy Dog, mm-hmm. Pete Steele, and, Bert, and Max. Oh, okay. This is, yeah, um, uh, Machine Head wasn't on that yet. Okay. But it was the four of them. And when they put them together for the shoot, there was this, like, we're all fucking on Roadrunner thing about it. You know mm. what I mean, and what's crazy is that at that moment, Doggy Dog was the biggest. Mm. You know, and so like, but but and and they had become like this pop entity. But he's like, that's not where I came from. Like that's like I loved Carnivore and I like Fear Factory. And You know what I mean? So it was like there was this this like Roadrunner Pride kind of deal, like. And it was this is a year after the dot the the Dynamo, you know, yes. that they all played at together also, and just completely fucking dominated, you know. Mm. So it's interesting because that that Donington was I was there um And it was just you know like I'd never been to Donington. i have been hearing about Donington since it started because of Kerrang! Yeah. And Monster like seeing those and, seeing yeah. those bills and seeing sixty thousand people and yeah, when it was just Monsters of Rock at Donington Park or whatever, mm-hmm. the big Dunlop fucking tire and you know like you know it was like a fantasy. It
0: was like bucket list to like go to Donington. Dialing straight back to the typos of just to, again bookended. Did you end up going to Amsterdam with the Sony Red guys?
1: i did not they went separately uh, um i did go a number of times but um but not with them i've only seen um, evidence of their trip there
0: yeah this is something I'm, I'm I'm almost obsessed with just because it's sticking carrot how do you make this shit happen you know what i mean it's just it's how do you how do you motivate a third party who you know who's already in bed with Roadrunner has been for a number of years, but it's it's like how do you get them over that edge? And in this case, it was case saying, "Look, if it goes gold, I'll take times them. And that right. no. <laughs> you all to know?
1: Amsterdam." That's right. Yeah, that's right. Because because listen, it was a well known jealousy that floated around that Roadrunner was based in Amsterdam and he would fly like the staff, you know, some of the staff over a couple of times a year. Mm. So you know, there was that whole, you know, like. Wish I could fucking work there. You know, like there was always that thing, you know? So at least Case understood the cachet of where he lived and, Mm. um, you know, and used it to his advantage.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of like organic buildups and marketing plans and things like that, how can, what do you attribute Gruntruck's performance to be? Uh, Hang on, that's not a sentence. To what do you attribute <laughs> Gruntruck's performance during their roadrunner years? Because they're, they're a decent band. And they were... It was, for- too er- it, was, it was too
1: early for Gruntruck.
0: Too early? I was going to say, yes. was it too late? No, no. It was too
1: late for Seattle. Um, oh, it gosh. was too early for Roadrunner. So, unfortunately, and I think Gruntruck made a great album, Um yep. And that was also like sort of right when I got there. Um, But it was at the tail end where people were just sort of sick of Seattle. Mm -hmm. Um, But Roadrunner was super late to the game. And so everything that Typo benefited from Mm -hmm. was everything you needed for Grunt Truck. And they Mm -hmm. got zero. So basically, they got nothing done for them. They were just a really weird sore thumb in the Roadrunner roster at that time.
0: Right. Okay. Interesting.
1: That was the first band that like (laughs) all the fucking death metal kids wrote in. It was like, what the fuck is this grunt truck shit? You know what I mean? It's like Seattle bullshit. You know what I mean? It was like like that, you know? Um, So yes, very, very late for Seattle too early in Roadrunner's evolution to do, be able to do anything with that band. Mm. Um, And that was that.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. I need to, I'm going to dive into Grundrick a little bit more at some point because I think that's an interesting arc and it's interesting how the resources are allocated based on those kind of reactions and what's going on in the world at the time. And, um, and they also effectively allowed Roadrunner to create um, legal precedent, which is interesting. Right. <laughs> I, I, I like that shit. I don't know yeah, why. Yeah. yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, When's the CD boom, and how is this affecting the back? I know this is now. I've now moved, we've, we've had a lot of momentum talking about these bands, yeah. and now I'm going to make it boring again by talking about CDs. That's fine. And, and am I am, am I missing a trick here? Because I haven't really focused on any of this—the actual product itself and, and the format of the product. With the CD booms happening in the early '90s, is this changing the way that things are being managed? Is it, it does is it easier to do? Is it hard to do than cassettes and records? Well, what was interesting is. I remember the CD thing
1: for sort of underground music Mm. starting to become a factor in like sort of 87, uh, 87, 88 is when it really, I feel like became a factor for these types of bands where, but the biggest question that was asked around that time was, is it worth putting this on CD? You know, like, will it sell enough to warrant producing X amount of CDs? Because people viewed them as being sort of expensive and had to make the long box and you know, the whole thing. And, you know, retailers were just getting used to like titles coming out more frequently on CD. So you had like the huge sellers, Michael Jackson was on CD, Madonna was on CD, YouTube was on CD, like all that stuff was happening, but underground music, not quite yet, you know? Mm. Um, So the, the biggest factor was whether or not to make them or not, you know, so it was sort of assessing sales and figuring out on an artist's next record, right. you know, do you make LPs, CDs, and cassettes? Mm-hmm. Um, and as the proportion began to change, you know, CDs start outdoing doing LPs, um, cassettes were still pretty viable. Uh, then that started to change you know, and CD became like the major format by far. And even there were releases that only came out on CD.
0: Right. So in the early days, it was a matter of just going, okay, there's a threshold into here and then we'll can expand, you know, expand on. And then you can even see on discos, when I'm looking at certain records, some of them are just vinyl and some of them are just, you know, some of them are vinyl and cassette, never just cassette.
1: Yeah. And some sort of, some get reissued on CD later. Um, you know, like now you, you know, people are making fricking cassettes again, which I think is insane, but, um, you know, vinyl obviously is having an extended moment or whatever. And, you know, you have that, that audience for that, which is cool. Yeah. But, you know, CDs, I don't know. I just think they took up a lot of space. You had this long box that was twice as long as the actual compact disc itself, you know, and it was just sort of the only way retailers knew how to convert their existing shelf space mm-hmm. to accommodate CDs, you know, where you, you had the album before the LP where it's just staring you in the face on the shelf. And now you have the CD that's, you know, like a fraction of the size and yeah. how's anybody going to know it's there. And that's what, you know, album it is. And should we even call it an album? I don't know what to call it. It, mm-hmm. it just caused confusion at first, but it, the biggest thing was really more about like, W- which releases should be on CD? Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, that was the conversation for like three years. Wow, wow, interesting, interesting. I know Billboard have some, uh, uh, some published like all the data relating to like CD versus vinyl versus cassette from those years, and that might be worth sort of doing some cross cross referencing on some years where there's some yeah, releases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That'd be an interesting um, analysis, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I think. I think I'm now going to hit on some of the cookie cutter stuff. All right. Unless there's something, I'm. Are there any sort like stories or anecdotes or anything I might have missed, which you think might might be interesting to me? I'm just trying to think of like specific
1: Roadrunner stuff.
0: Yeah, I didn't have like musician or anything. But
1: I'll tell you one thing that's that you know, like I realize now that I don't think I, I realized that. Like you were asking about Brunch Truck and like Roadrunner trying to sort of expand its horizons as far mm. as the types of bands that it signed and things like that so unfortunately they tried like a Seattle thing when nobody gave a fuck about Seattle anymore yeah so they made a good album you know but like nobody was going to hear it you know mm-hmm. so I remember when I came over there you know the first few bands that I signed to Roadrunner I didn't want them to be too much of a stretch for what roadrunner did so one of the reasons i wanted to go to roadrunner was that it was a very strong established independent label even though it was sort of steeped in like sort of really aggressive metal death metal etc but A lot of hardcore kids liked obituary and things like that. And they were at least entertained by fucking Glenn Mm -hmm. Benton. And, you know, they had liked carnivores, some of them, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the things that I wanted to do there were felt like a natural branch of the tree instead of trying to break into Seattle. You know, it wasn't like, let's do this crazy stretch you know of genres or Youngster subgenres. Up. like yeah right like hardcore and metal at that point they're playing each other's shows kids are going to metal shows that like hardcore metal kids are going to hardcore shows like all that stuff's happening yes so i just went back to new york like what's happening here like what do kids accept here like what what branches of the tree of these scenes that are established are like happening right now. Mm. And so you have like a doggy dog, like not the first to incorporate hip hop into hardcore metal, whatever the fuck, you know, it was Mm. at the time to me, they fit in more with like a mighty, mighty boss tones or a fishbone or whatever, but they were playing hardcore shows. Those are the shows they were playing. And the same kids that were into the really aggressive hardcore bands were going off to them, you mm. know, in these little shows, 150, 200 people maybe going berserk and knew every, so- uh, every word to their demo, you know? Mm. And I went to see them and I was like, this band's fucking great, you know? And so I don't think they're ready to make an album. So that's hence the EP first and then the album. And yep. But I didn't see... <laughs> immediately this super commercial potential the way that they found it you know Mm -hmm. i didn't see them becoming mtv darlings and like all that shit i didn't see that i saw (laughs) i saw a branch of the roadrunner tree that they worked in the hardcore world they loved metal as fans you know what i mean and it just all makes sense even black train jack it was like they were just a melodic punk band like melodic hardcore band punk band whatever Mm. Um, and they started to catch on with the crowd that like the offspring and like Green Day and then even like No Doubt and like these are the bands that they started towards the end before they broke up those are the bands that would come to New York and ask them to open you know Rancid like those types of bands Mm. they were all fucking platinum at the time you know and they all loved them and I was like, if they make a third album, they're gonna blow, like they're gonna mm-hmm. blow up. And, but when I first saw them, A, it was Ernie from Token Entry, not because I knew Token Entry, because they had been on Hawker. Hawker,
0: okay. yeah, yeah. Was,
1: I, I was a fan of Token Entry years before, it had nothing to do with Hawker. Yeah. The Hawker album was my least favorite, you know? So it's like, uh, you know, I wanted it to fit. I wanted it to make sense. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want like I didn't want to be like hey Seattle's happening. you know what I mean so that I just would never have done something like that because it's I think kids see through that shit you know they they, yeah. they know when you're when you're forcing something and they also knew that that sound was over
0: melads have this innate thing where but they, they can spot in authenticity from a mile yeah, away 100% they, even the slightest bit we'd be great detectives and roadrunner
1: was their label you know roadrunner was a metalhead fucking label so from a detective point of view all those detectives detected bullshit
0: (laughs) i'm I'm, let me i'm gonna throw out my latest like theory at you and you can tell me if i'm bullshitting or not it seems that our relationship with the label is like it's because there's these great bands from a purely consumer perspective. There's these great flagship bands. You got like several terror, machine head. You got um, fair factory, slipknot, nickelback, blah, blah 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 blah. But in terms of like the functionality and the roster of the '90s versus the 2000s, it feels like the '90s is sort of seventy percent reactive, thirty percent proactive, and then it's inverted. In the 2000s, I feel like the 2000s they're way more trend setting than they are in the 90s. That's not to say they weren't trend setting at all. Like typo is like counterculture to counterculture. It's a load. Of, it's 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 very special stuff. There's yeah. a lot of shit in there which is reactive. I think, such as such as for example the, the thrash thing. I don't know. I don't think it's played out. I think Monty's an innovator in that space, so I wouldn't say that. Yeah, we have things like like the Britpop stuff from the UK. Um. We have some of the gangster rap stuff up in um, the late nineties. There's some like trance and dance stuff happening in the European yeah. territory yeah, as well. The shit that we yeah. heard of basically the, the 80% that fell below the line, a yeah. lot of it I feel is reactive, <laughs> trying to yeah. ride a wave on something. You can even say grunge truck. Let's include grunge in there as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think for sure that, that, uh, as Case tasted a little bit of success, um, you know, he started to throw a few more darts, you know? Mm. And so you had the whole fucking Gabber scene, you know, right under his nose in yes. Holland. But there was, I forget the name of the group, there was one group who had a massive hit in Holland with a fucking Gabber record. And uh so I mean like massive, you know? And so he just was like, fuck it. Like, we we have access to that. What's that? Techno head? Maybe. Maybe. I forget. I forget. It was, I mean, it had a vocal on it, I think, too. It was like, it was like a Gabba record, but like, you know, sort of a commercial vocal to it, but like super aggressive musically. Mm -hmm. And it's just still like a dun 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 dun, you know, but like, but it was like, ah, Um, that's that's the best I can do. So, <laughs> bang on. so yeah. So he he put a toe in that water, you know? And then on top of you know the Gabber thing, he's like, well, trance and then Techno's back and then Junkie XL. And like, you know, Junkie XL had been doing remixes for Roadrunner bands. Yeah. So eventually they were like, let's put out a Junkie XL album, you mm-hmm. know? And so things like that happened. So some of it was like. Undercover organic, you know, mm. and some of it was definitely uh, sort of like, well, this might sell, you know. There was definitely that, yeah. um, but you know, not all of it was exactly the same. Um, no, not at all. Of of, Like, what else? Like, he dabbled in, you know, but
0: um, classical, you know, yeah. That was a classical. The, dan- the dance
1: thing was definitely occupied a bunch of his time for a while.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm it's the way I approach that question is disingenuous because it makes it sound like they didn't find their form until the 2000s, which isn't fair at all. It's not right. Yeah. 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 But it's like,
1: it was so a lot more experimenting and a lot more chance taking because they could, you know, could um, make, you know, yeah, what, what you, had, you had a platinum record or, or whatever under their belt. It was a different, different time for the label. And you still had this very strong distribution mm-hmm. and you could do these things. And then, you know, he he went with um, with uh, what you call it? Um, you know, Salt and Peppers label. Um, Next plateau, you know, he gave uh, a label to. You know, mm. but what he didn't realize with Case, um, what Case didn't realize is that they released singles. You know, and Roadrunner could not help them with that you know um he thought that somehow like the roadrunner radio department was going to fucking help next plateau records you know like <laughs> with, with singles and it's like no no <laughs> you know and 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 i like those guys like the the next plateau guys are really cool um i you know i loved uh, ultramagnetic MCs like that mm. was an old classic you know underground new york fucking record you know yeah. and so i was like the people who did that are coming here you know so it was great for me and then i wound up being their confidant being like yeah rotor can't do that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: like,
1: they can't help you with that shit what are you talking about like just look at it as you have distribution that's what you got
0: yeah yeah
1: <laughs> you have no promotion and marketing help nothing <laughs>
0: Right. I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah, let's do the cookie cutter questions. But if you do think about anything else that's like, because those reflections, that's what it's all about. Just sort of going, oh yeah, in hindsight, this is, this was the thing. Um, Best day at Roadrunner, worst day at Roadrunner. And you can't say the day you joined, the day you left. Yeah, no, I won't do
1: that. (laughs) The best day at Roadrunner was Dynamo 95. That was the greatest, not only the greatest day at Roadrunner, it was, one of the greatest days of my life it really was and i will never ever ever forget that day and how proud i was to work there
0: mm-hmm. and how proud of these bands i was that we was went, the best day we went we went to uh, we went into some detail last time but it, yeah. thing, I, i'm asked this a, a couple of times because um across, across like different conversations and so many people are just like it was amazing can you elaborate? No, I, I was fucking hammered.
1: Oh, I can, I can elaborate. And I was fucking hammered. But I can absolutely elaborate. So I'll just, I'll sum it up in the Dog Eat Dog set from that day. It, right? yeah. So now, and I'd already seen Madball play in front of probably there were probably 60, 70,000 people out there at noon. Mm. You know, there was 120,000 people out there later in the day. But I'd already, like, I could already go home having seen Madball play in front of 60,000 people, mm. like, who liked them. It mm. wasn't even just, like, 60,000 people that were there. Well, who there was, was 60,000 people yeah. where five or 6,000 of them were a pit, you know? And you could see that other people around knew who they were. You know, mm. so I was in shock because I'd never seen that For a band like of that type before, you know, so so then Doggy Dog's going to play, like five six at night, you know, maybe three bands, four bands after them still, and I'm like, man, like I just watched all these really heavy bands like play to that crowd, and I'm like, this is the lightest band on this whole show, like I don't know how this is going to go, like you know, and I'm not talking to the band about it, I'm just like, I don't know how the fuck this is going to go, so. So they go on and they just tear the place to shreds. Like it was such a triumphant, sick moment, you know, Mm. where I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Like if you took a photo of me during their set, I'm sure it was wide open. Mm -hmm. I had fucking goosebumps. It was insane. I can't really explain it properly where it gives it the juice it requires, like, I don't know how to do that. Right. Mm. So they are just killing, you know, start to finish. I can't believe what I've just watched. Right. Mm -hmm. I do see case out the corner of my eye at the back exit. Right. So where the band has to walk off this massive festival stage. Mm -hmm. Case is not a touchy feely guy. Right. Not at all. Like, people were shocked when he spoke to them, you know? So they're getting off, and John Connor is walking off the stage, soaking wet towel, the whole thing, and Case hugs him, (laughs) right? Pulls him over and hugs him. John told me later, he goes, I didn't know Case knew who the fuck I was. Like, it took that for him to even see me and know that I'm the singer of Doggy Dog, for one. He goes, two, I think he just realized that we're about to get a lot bigger than we are right now because they were in the midst. They were just after that biohazard tour that really put them on the map Mm -hmm. and transitioning to, like, the media, like, loving them, right? So we filmed the No Fronts, remix video Mm -hmm. at that show right so there's footage from that show in the video cool so to have been able to capture that right but even like these bands that i loved or loved the people whatever it was that i'd seen all day fear factory right and then they invite freddie from mad ball up to do an agnostic front cover i'm like what i'm like fear factory knows who agnostic front is and actually (laughs) asked freddie to do this like It was all these little moments, you know, and then life of agony, just killing, you know, and then typo headlines and it's raining and it's like green lights and rain. And like it was just like I had to decompress. Thank God the flight took as long as it did to go home a couple of days later because I needed to decompress. And be like, holy shit, that's my life. (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's and that's a a, a much much too much further than you did last time it's it's very illuminating to me well because
1: the question you asked was like the best day and it's like that was the best day it really was like in that context it was the biggest holy shit moment it was one of the biggest holy shit moments of my life let alone my time at roadrunner
0: i'm trying to get alan half to see if he can dig out some of the uh like the, the umbrellas that he got made and so like the, the beer oh, I, I probably have
1: like i may have like just some still
0: photos or something but, but i don't know if i still have them or not he's got some he's got some show, he's shown them to me nice but yeah. like i was
1: like after that festival i went back to amsterdam and stayed at elan's house you know
0: yes like yes. that was
1: what we did like i became very good friends with land. he was a great guy like knew like The bands that i was bringing there like knew what was up you know i didn't have to like teach him anything or explain anything to him like he just knew like black train jack i got it you know like i know the world they come from i get it his thing
0: was um life of agony that was his big time darling
1: big time he really embraced the shit out of them he did
0: yeah yeah you know i need to i need to start pitching dates like of these things because i mean Oh, I was I was on the chat I had earlier. It was a, like a, a death metal sort of connoisseur in my local area. And we were just going through like the discography of like which, how does Rudner embrace like death metal? And we're thinking, right, okay, let's look at the dates. Beneath the Remains, April 7th, eighty nine. Annihilator, eight, uh, Alice in Hell, April 17th, eighty nine. Slowly we got. Slowly we June the fourteenth, they die. It's like fuck, 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 fuck. And then you got like ninety-five. You got the gold record, the culmination of all these efforts. And then Dynamo, presumably a few weeks later, is there's these these moments of just like like where things just the kettle just spills over.
1: And everything, everything led to the next thing, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so let me think. You know, I can't necessarily pinpoint like the worst day per se but i will say that the most frustrating thing at roadrunner Mm -hmm. was for a time realizing that america was not going to be able to break some of these bands the way that they had overseas that it just wasn't going to happen so like i'm sitting there in new york like doggy dog, it's at two hundred thousand records. It's at three hundred thousand records. It's at four hundred thousand records. They just sold out their tour, you know. Like, and mm. I'm sitting there, and they're just like, "Just shut the fuck up already," you know. Like enough. That's over there. Yeah. I'm like, well, "What the fuck are you doing here?" You know. Mm. Um, and I realized that they had no interest in trying that. You know, they just didn't believe in it,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that's it. And I was like. Even for the sake of politics, that these guys live across the fucking river from here, like a few miles, and they walk into this office, and you're going to look them in the eye and say, we're really not going to try very hard, you know? Mm. Like, we don't really believe it over here. And it, that sucked, you know? And, and, and it, it put a big damper on things for me. And that was sort of 96, you know? Mm. Um, and I left a year later but that was sort of the moment where I realized I'm never going to get that done here. Like we're never really, really going to break one of the bands that I'm bringing here.
2: Yeah. In America.
1: We're just not going to get it done, you know? And, you know, so I sort of had to accept that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was rough because I, it felt like defeat, you know, and, you know, mm-hmm. It wasn't just about Doggy Dog, but Doggy Dog was a big example because it was like, they're so fucking big over there. And yeah. then you have like 96, like Rage Against the Machines blowing up, you know? And then even in New York, like Doggy Doggy is getting much bigger support slots because they're so big over there, you know? Yeah. So like, again, like a no doubt comes to New York, Doggy Dog opens. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's mm-hmm. like they knew that like, Maybe they'll take us out in Europe, you know, like that kind of stuff. We'll give them the New York show. Mm. Um, And, and, you know, things like that were happening, you know, and it just sucked because some of my bands needed to be on the radio. Like Doggy Dog was not going to be street credible, fucking this and that, you know, even in America, it's, you needed video and radio and whatever. Yeah. But even the touring, like what are they going to do, like not go to Europe for a year so they could spend all the time touring America to try to get things happening? And Mm -hmm. they would have spent a lot of time here if they felt that the label was behind them, you know, and they weren't. And there were a few cases of that, you know, and I just felt like, why am I fighting with my own fucking company? Mm. Like, why am I fighting with these people here to care, you know, or like... You know try a few experiments like it's like what are you not making enough money as a company with doggy dog like we can't like mm. try a few things in America like you know Come on. yeah it just not it stopped make it stopped making sense it stopped being fun you know is that uh, why you left well there was a big part of that yeah I feel mm. like like I've sort of done all I can do here you know right um, I don't want to put another band in this position you know to feel so and the band it was so important to them trying to get something done in America yeah it was really important to them and I really wanted to deliver on that for them and I couldn't you know mm. and there wasn't much I could do about it you know mm. and all of a sudden now the, the cute little indie with all the fucking cool music fans now I'm fighting like what feels like a machine and I'm like have that happen you know mm. like the band's stature should dictate that they have they should be given a chance in America like fuck all of you and your opinions <laughs> I don't give a shit if you don't like the band. You didn't like them before. Look at the numbers. There's a, there's a yeah,
0: you cannot make reason for this.
1: You didn't like them before. Yeah. So they weren't like, it wasn't typo where, you know, like people just universally embraced them because they thought they would be cool for being associated with them. Mm. It's like, they didn't think that with doggy dog, you know, it's like, all right, well, fuck you then. I'm leaving. Yeah, <laughs> so I, st- I started looking for a job. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. How did case react to that? case understood
1: he understood yeah. my frustration you know so he didn't he didn't know i was looking
2: mm-hmm. but when
1: i said i'm leaving you know he got it mm-hmm. um you know he wanted me to stay but i said i just this isn't it's not working anymore you know it's not working for me like what i want to do here i can't get done and i feel like i'm fighting i'm fighting Inside here, what's the point? You know, um, you know I'm unhappy. You know I'm like arguing with people. You know, like it's it's time to go. Like it's better for you if I leave. Much better for you if I leave, <laughs> and then for everyone around here. If I leave, when did you reconnect with Kason? So I left in '97. Yes, um, I probably reconnected with him in about two. 2014-ish mm. 15-ish, like around that time so I had maybe my second book out, it was around that time right. so I had done um, The Merciless Book of Metal Lists and then I had done the to Tour 20th Anniversary book wow. and so wow. I was starting to understand that this was probably my career path mm-hmm. and I found out through Doug Keo that Case now had a book publishing company in the Netherlands. Yeah, So I reached out to him and he said, I'm coming to New York in a few weeks. Let's get together. So I met him at his apartment and we talked and we just wound up having this conversation about, wouldn't it be great if there was like a book publisher that was similar to what Roadrunner was in those days, you know, Mm -hmm. and he was, he was sort of like, He didn't know what to make of that idea at first. So we, we parted ways. I didn't hear from him for months, you know? And then he calls me up one day. He goes, you know that idea we talked about? I'm like, yeah, he goes, we should do that. (laughs) So I started working with him, you know, on launching this American, you know, book publishing entity. Right. And, you know, and he, and he had very limited patience for it. So it lasted a few years, you know, um, bunch of hiccups you know whatever but mm-hmm. i got a few books at and out and it kept you know my thing going and then the guy that he hired um to to basically run the american operation um i'm still doing my books with oh wow so it's uh you know it, it was good for something yeah absolutely but even I- even with that like case he 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 cased me again. You know what I mean? He like, he, he like shut down the thing. Like when I was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, we're just getting started, you know? And, and so that was that, but I have no ill will towards him. I'm very fond of him. And, you know, he, he, he gave me quite a break, you know, um, after my first job mm-hmm. in the music business. And it was just a great, great experience. It really was. And, uh, and I'll always remember it, you know, as the
0: great experience that has been, Awesome. And that's a great way we can, we can end it.
1: I mean, that's, that's it, right? It's like, I, I love, I love my time there. I really do. It was such an amazing, amazing time. I got to even travel, you know? So yeah. every time he'd bring us over to Europe, I'd be like, okay, well, I'm taking a vacation the week after and just taking a shorter flight from Amsterdam to wherever <laughs> and just paying the $50 to change my return flight, you know? Mm. and i was like okay i'll go to belgium i'll go to germany i'll go to fucking czech republic i'll do all these things you know so you know and i and i hung out in 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 amsterdam a bunch and i made some really great friends i mean Alan became a really good friend for a while and you know we were still like you know loosely in touch on you know social media and whatnot and um you know through his time at epitaph and all those things and Mm. um just you know great people like you can't you can't like sort of, I'm very fortunate, very fortunate to have had that whole experience.
0: I didn't think we'd go on for another two hours, but we fucking did. I thought I, I, thought... I, I, I
1: expected
0: two hours. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you, you didn't, you didn't ask your IRD question. I'll tell you that. Which is the one you want to know the difference between IRD and major distribution. Oh my God.
0: Why is that not on my notes? Uh, you sent it to me. Shit. How the fuck did I miss that? Should we do it now? I don't know, yeah, if you want to. Fuck yeah, let's do it now, because that is a good question now. This isn't all on my nose for some
1: reason. So, Important Record Distributors uh, was the biggest independent record distributor in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, they were big on imports because they called themselves important. And that's where it came from. And that was the first proper job I had in the music business. I was a salesperson for, for IRD. And so when I worked there, uh, when I worked there, it was a completely independent operation. So not owned by anybody um, and huge warehouse in Queens, you know, where I lived. And basically, uh, you know, you could buy like an import fucking wacky YouTube strange packaging single. Um, and then it started to really uh, get into distributing independent mm-hmm. music, you know, so various labels, when I got there, it had everything from, you know, SST and those types of labels to like revelation records, uh, things like that. Yeah. So what was different about it, uh, as far as the major distribution system versus IRD, not a huge difference other than the fact that the major distribution systems had juice because they had so many platinum records and whatnot. Right. Going through that okay. system. So they had leverage that IRD did not have. Mm-hmm. So before Sony owned IRD, uh, and it, well, the whole company became Relativity and it became Red and like yeah. all this shit. So you're not shipping 238,000 fucking Shotgun Messiah records, right? But when it's Sony and the head of Sony distribution makes calls to like three of the big chains and said, look, we bought this IRD. It's now called red and we own it. They're going for it on this band. Mm -hmm. So when they tell you they want whatever order, take it seriously. Mm -hmm. And they had to take it seriously because them taking in 50,000 Shotgun Messiah albums or 30, 40,000 Shotgun Messiah albums is nothing. And Sony was distributing Michael Jackson and, you know, all these fucking things that sold multiple millions, kept their kids fed, kept the lights on, yeah. you know, all that stuff. So that was the biggest difference, was leverage. leverage. right? Because you could... Yeah, because you could, the stores, if they had a conflict with, let's say, Sony Distribution, right? Sony Distribution could say, well, then we won't sell our records into you. They didn't have to, you know, and your kids won't fucking eat. You know what I mean? And it's like, it was that fucked up, you know? Um, So basically, IRD couldn't do that, you know? Like, we're going to stop selling you Joe Satriani albums. You know what I mean? It's like, big deal. (laughs) if you really want to know the difference that was the difference
0: that's fascinating though that's what it all comes down to the leverage and I guess well, that was it you know just like
1: just like the radio thing with typo. it's like until people gave a shit you weren't getting typo on the radio hence the gradual organic thing like Roadrunner wasn't fucking bribing anybody with fucking cocaine to get a band on the radio like that was not going to happen Mark Abramson could not give cocaine to anybody to get radio play. <laughs>
0: right. I'm, I'm going to leave it there because it's now one o'clock. All right,
1: Jim, go to bed. Cheers, <laughs> sure, All, right, All the best.